You know what it feels like to meet one of your heroes, don't you, Kurt? You know, yes, it's happened a few times in the past four years on the podcast. You know, it's from great researchers, the authors, even musicians. Can you say Dessa? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty sure, Tim, I'm pretty sure that it has happened a bunch to you as well. Oh, yeah. For me, meeting our guest today was a meet your hero moment. Whoa. It really was. Yeah, Whoa. truly. Like her work on motivation and goal setting has been influential to my work for the past 20 years. I've referenced her studies and client presentations dozens, maybe hundreds of times. And it was very cool to come face-to-face well, with- face-to-face via Squadcast, Tim. I mean, (laughs) we didn't meet in person. It's still, you know, pandemic time. True. Okay. But she still holds incredibly high esteem in my life and and in my work as well. I get it. Same for me. And if you haven't already figured this out, you are listening to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. In today's episode, as Tim has already mentioned, we're going to talk with one of the few researchers on the planet who blends motivation and goal setting into their work. And that's important to us because our consultancies are still very much focused on the way goals and motivation work together for our corporate clients and how that impacts their employees. Absolutely. So true, Kurt. Today, we're talking with Ayelet Fishbach. She's the Jeffrey Breckenridge Keller Professor of Behavioral Science and Marketing at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. She is an expert on motivation and decision-making And she's the author of Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation, which is why we got a chance to speak with her. Ayelet's groundbreaking research on human motivations has won her a bunch of international rewards, but I can tell you as someone who's been reading her papers for some time, it's her finely tuned research questions that are matched by her clear writing style. Oh, so true. And we loved her book, Get It Done. And we hope that the listeners of Behavioral Grooves will check it out for its very human approach to goal setting and motivation. It brings this information to life. Uh, so, Kurt, expand on this human approach thing. All Aren't all behavioral science books kind of based on the human approach? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, not necessarily. I mean, I, so here, here's the thing. Her book walks you through the importance of goal setting, much like all the work since Locke and Latham have done, but she explores goals about doing versus not doing, or what are called approach versus avoidance goals. She talks about how goals work best when they're flexible and about how it's good to set goals that are selfish. You should know all about that, right? (laughs) This is the different than most of the self-help books and biographies on great leaders that are out there right now. Her approach isn't a big all or nothing story. It's a very subtle way that people are influenced by context, about the goals they set. And because of that, our motivation and our goals ought to be as well. And that's what I mean by a human approach. Wow. Well, well said. Um, okay, so we're going to hear Ayala talk about a bunch of things that we hold dear, like things that Kurt mentioned about goals being flexible and selfish, but also you'll hear her discuss some aspects of motivation that will hopefully give you some fresh ideas for when you're setting your next goals. Yeah, and she also cleared up the difference between having a goal that is a means, such as losing 10 pounds, or I need to exercise 10 times a day in order to lose that 10 pounds and having a goal that is what you really want all along to fit into your old genes. I know that's my goal right here, right? It's to sit (laughs) into those damn, you know, brown jeans that I haven't worn for four years. Anyway, goals should be things we really want so that we are willing to invest in them. And here's the way that she puts it so eloquently. But that means that when you uh, sign up for a goal, when you decide to do something, you want to set it such that you will be motivated to to follow through. You uh, want it to be a, a goal and, and not a means. Okay? You want it to be the thing itself and not something that is just the way there. Okay, like you want to have a career, not to apply for a job. You want to 
have a house, not to uh, uh, you know uh, search for a house. Uh, you want the goal to be the thing that is really the ultimate good thing that you hope to achieve. Well said. And one of our meaningful goals is that we are heavily invested in providing valuable behavioral insights to you each and every week. If you've got a question or an idea for an episode, just drop us a line. Connect with us on social media. We would love to hear from you. And we also hope you share this episode with a friend, a colleague, anybody. Give your friends the gift of some fresh ideas, some free ideas that they can use to improve their lives either at work or at home. Or, or even maybe better yet, give the gift of fresh ideas to a whole world by giving Behavioral Grooves <laughs> a quick five-star rating or leaving us a short review. It really, truly does go a long way in helping other people learn about us and find us. Absolutely. We would really, really appreciate that a lot. But right now, we encourage you to sit back with a generous draft of motivational goal setting and enjoy our conversation with Ayelet Fishbach. Ayelet Fishbach, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for having me. We are excited as always. This is actually a big excitement. You do work in an area that both Tim and I do work in, and so we've been fans for a long, long time, so we are excited about this. But Before we get into the main stuff, we always talk and we always go through a speed round. So I will begin. Coffee or tea? Which is the preferred drink for you? Definitely a tea. I am uh, married uh, to a coffee lover. Half of my kitchen is a giant (laughs) coffee machine. And now I stick to my tea bags. Okay. Bravo. (laughs) Bravo. You're in my camp on that. that. That's terrific. Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite musician or favorite athlete? A favorite musician. Okay. Should I explain? No. Yeah, yeah, no, no, Uh, definitely. (laughs) Yes. I'm fascinated by music. I am really not a musician. I'm actually bad at music, but I enjoy listening to music. And I I would really like to meet someone that, you know, maybe someone that's not alive anymore. But Oh, well, well, like who? who You know, like Beethoven Uh would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Some of those composers that have written some of those amazing pieces that have lasted hundreds of years and it's still, you know, making people, um, you know, just wow at them. So those are great. So good. Okay. Is it enough to have a goal that is specific and measurable or do we need to make those goals actionable as well? Is that a speed question? Absolutely <laughs> actionable. <laughs> I mean, is it? Do we? Do, can we have goals that are just specific and measurable, or do we need to also add in this actionable component? So, like, well, you know that uh, there is the example of uh, uh, calorie uh, counting, uh, <laughs> which you know, when many people try, uh, it's uh, uh, it's not very actionable because you. you for most of us, we really don't know what is yeah. the, the action. Like we don't really see these calories when we look at the at the no. dessert, and we, when we don't know what to uh, what to do with it. So yeah, the, it needs to be actionable. Yeah, and I loved your in the book. You, you talk about labels on on food products and different ways that labels could be changed from a caloric kind of focus to others. I'll hold that question because I want to get back there because this is a speed round, but I want to definitely get to that because I I thought it was really fascinating stuff in the book. One more speed round question. Is it possible to harness the science of motivation to motivate ourselves? Yes. And (laughs) you you saw me hesitating because I think so. Like I, I have some work suggesting that possibly, and I wrote a book hoping that this is uh, uh, possible, but it's still work in progress. I'm optimistic. All right. Well, fantastic. And so you did write this fantastic book, Get It Done. It's a fantastic book to just to begin yeah. with, but could you it. give our listeners just an overview of what, what do you want readers to get out of Get It Done? What do you want them to walk away with after reading this? I want them to be able to analyze their situation and understand what tools they have to motivate themselves. And mm. in particular, to, to understand that you can change the goal that you are pursuing, you can change the, the feedback that you are uh, getting, how you monitor progress 
you can design interventions that make better connection between this goal and your other goals. And you can use the, the people around you, the, the social uh, support to uh, uh, follow through. And, and really, you need to create your own intervention based on, on these four very general ingredients. Hmm. It, I love that you started with the idea that your goals can change. Uh, I think that there's a terrible mythology, especially in the corporate world, that once you set a goal, you have to stick to it. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to what research led you to understanding that the flexibility in goals is really important and it actually helps us in, uh, achieve them? Could you, could you speak to that? Yeah, thank you. So, you know, we, we set a goal to motivate ourselves. Often we put the number and the, the reason for that number is uh, to get us going. Okay? Mm. Yeah, uh, the, the reason these numbers work is that we see anything below that number as, as a loss. Okay? And, and so we are motivated to, to do that. This is why there are more marathon runners finishing the marathon in three hours and 59 minutes than four hours and one minute. Okay? Mm -hmm. it, just, it, it motivates us. But that's the only purpose of setting that number. Like, by itself, it's meaningless. It really doesn't matter whether you finish the marathon one minute below four hours or one minute above four hours, or uh, uh, you know whether you met your your saving goals uh, uh, just at what you expected or like one hundred dollar below that. And once you understand that, you have a, a healthier uh, relationship with uh, uh, with your goals. Okay, you, you understand that the purpose was to motivate yourself. In one of the early studies that we ran, we invited people to let us know when they are going to submit some, some tasks that we gave them to do. Okay? It was a homework assignment. When are you going to give it back to us? And when people understand that they don't need to be accurate, they set optimistic predictions. Mm. And they are a little bit late. Okay, They say that they will finish it in three days. They finish it in three days and a half or four days. But that's fine, okay? When we tell them that you absolutely need to be accurate, then they set their predictions to, okay, they say it will take me a week. Yeah. And it does take them a week, okay? So they <laughs> <laughs> they just do less. Okay? <laughs> so, so, so the idea of setting that, be, be, because it had to be accurate, they they added in some buffer time. And then because of that, they they used up the entire time. They didn't finish it in the the four days, even if they'd set that goal that had been three days and they were a little bit late, if it was flexible, thus being, hey, you, you actually finished it earlier um, than you would have if you would have had a hard, harder goal set that for yourself on, on those things. Exactly. And, you know, in, in the office, in employment situation, often if there is too much emphasis on, on meeting these self-set goals, on, on treating these numbers as, as more than they are, then you create the incentive uh, for people to set their goals below what they can do, mm. right? So they, you know, if my boss is going to punish me for being late on, on the deadline, then I want this deadline to be next year and not next month. So <laughs> I, I will meet it. It's fascinating. It's fascinating because we do a fair amount of work with organizations around those goals. And, and that doesn't seem to be kind of a, a prevailing thought pattern. It is like, no, we are setting these goals and we are going to stick with those goals. And those are the goals that we we need to, to make sure that we achieve. And what I'm hearing you say is that we need to rethink that to a certain degree, particularly if we're thinking about goals from a motivational perspective, if you're really trying to get people to tap into the power of those goals, which is building that motivation and getting them excited and moving towards that, then maybe we need to rethink how we're actually thinking about those goals, a little meta goal piece there. So, Exactly. We need to have healthier relationship with our goals. Okay? <laughs> they are meant to uh, motivate us. They, uh, <laughs> they, they usually, they're not standing there by themselves. <laughs> you don't need to do that. You need to do as best as you can. People actually feel good when they make progress. It's that the feeling that I'm doing something that's important that makes me feel good, not necessarily achieving that thing. Often after people achieve a goal, well, they, they feel good for a moment and then they care much less. Is How difficult is that progress to continue to um, 
be sort of top of mind. Is progress an easy part of this? Because it's very important in terms of the motivational power. Is it? Do you think? Do you think people stumble and struggle with the idea of, of keeping their their own progress top of mind? So sometimes there are no good cues for progress, and progress is really critical for motivation. And it's really when people make progress that is more than what they expected. When they exceed their expectations in terms of progress, this is when they they feel good about their goals. Mm. Okay, so. It's not necessarily achieving the goal, it's the feeling that I am making progress and that I am making more progress than where I thought I would be at, uh, at this point. This is the, the source of satisfaction with, uh, with goals and this is what feeds the, uh, the motivation. And then there are ways to uh, get yourself to focus on this progress. Okay, one thing that we are uh, explored in our research is looking back mm. at how much you achieved, in particular when you are pursuing a moving target. Okay, Then looking back and see, oh, I've already done that much is better than looking ahead and like not seeing progress at all. And, and do you think that we've, we fail to look back enough to take in and sort of give ourselves credit? It depends on uh, who and when, mm. uh, but we often fail to uh, uh, to look back. Uh, my, you know, one of my examples is right now with that uh, pandemic that people look ahead and say, "Oh, like we we don't see the end of it, and we we are losing hope." And, and you hear this desperation, and then when you guide people to look back and think about how much you have learned, okay, how much you adjusted your life, how much safer you feel now. Then they they tell us, oh yeah, like I I actually did learn. I am doing better. Yeah, I think this ties into. So I loved chapter seven, the the middle problem that you wrote about in in the book, because I see it play out so many times in my own life and in the work that we do with people. It's like this. I'm not going to explain it. Can you help our listeners understand a little bit about what the problem with the middle is? Uh, let me start with an experiment. Okay. We did an experiment on cutting corners, but we were quite literal. Okay. We gave people five shapes. Uh, they, they were like on, on a piece of paper and uh, a pair of scissors and asked them to cut these shapes. And they did a good job on the first uh, cutting uh, task. They did uh, a good job on the last. But in the middle, they were literally cutting the corners of these <laughs> shapes. <laughs> They were not doing a good job, okay? <laughs> and this is a natural because when we start something, we are enthusiastic, right? It's a new goal, okay? It's easy to see progress. Like immediately as we start something, we already made a lot of progress. Uh, toward the end, again, like we can see the end of it. And there is, uh, in particular for um, all or nothing uh, uh, goals, there is a lot of enthusiasm about finishing that and, and getting the, the reward or the, the degree or, or whatever. And so, you know, there are parties involved in finishing a goal often, like graduation. We see the excitement. We see people work hard. In the middle is when you don't quite see progress. If you look back, it doesn't look like you are doing much. If you look ahead, it doesn't seem like progress is very fast. This is uh, also the place where it's easy to hide from yourself. We tend to not remember so much what we did in the middle. Like we remember how we started the day. We remember how we ended the day. In the middle, it's kind of lost on us. And this is uh, uh, where it's it's hard to uh, stay motivated. Mm. Yeah. You talked about uh, a powerful goals feel like they're worth the price tag. I love that line. I just love that. They're worth the price tag. Can you talk a little bit about the price tag for powerful goals? Well, the price tag is for all goals, okay? That, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? We, we take on goals and, and, and then uh, we usually realize that it's more work than what we anticipated. And I think that this is true for most goals that people take on, okay? Like we, we thought that it will be a, a easy or temporary uh, in particular at work, okay, we, we thought that we'll uh, uh, just get into this project and, and do it for a day or a week. And then like uh, a year later, we are still uh, <laughs> 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 yes. uh, 
Well, why is that? Why do we miss that? Oh, you know, if there is uh, one fallacy that uh, uh, we can always trust people and ourselves to make is the planning fallacy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. We can plan on that. Yes. Yeah, we can totally plan on the planning fallacy. And, and it, it's intuitive. Why? Because when we plan something for the future, we don't think about everything else that is happening, right? So when I think about when will I finish this project, well, I envision my life as if there are uh, eight hours a day in which I walk on this project. Right? <laughs> you know, my uh, my my uh, one of my colleagues here once told me that uh, uh, he wouldn't schedule anything for more than six months away, because if you open your calendar more than like uh, after six months, then it looks empty. Uh, and, and everything is possible, right? Like, you, oh, so of course yeah. I will do that in six <laughs> months. Like, I have nothing else scheduled, okay? But then you get there. So, yes, people are uh, planning to, to do more than they can, which I don't think is bad, okay? I think that if we plan to do a lot, then we end up doing more than if we didn't plan to do a lot. Uh, but that means that when you uh, uh, sign up for a goal, when you decide to do something, you want to set it such that you will be motivated to to follow through. You uh, want it to be a, a goal and, and not a means. Okay? You want it to be the thing itself and, and not something that is just the, the way there. Okay, like you want to have a career, not to apply for a job. Okay? You you want to have a house, not to uh, uh, you know uh, search for a house. Uh, you, you want the goal to be the thing that is really the the ultimate good thing that you hope to achieve. What, what is the mechanism around that? Because I, I found that fascinating. I love I love that concept that you talk about is setting the goal and not setting the, not the means. But what is it about the goal being the key aspect as opposed to, you know, because again, I think about this from, you know, everybody talks about weight loss, right? So, oh, I want to lose 30 pounds or whatever it would be as opposed to, uh, you know, if a means could be, I'm going to, you know, reduce my calorie intake and we can get back to the label piece on that after this or, you know, exercise. I will I will do, you know, two hours of exercise every day, which seems like the the means to it. But what I'm hearing is that, the you know, we need to set that that goal at the end because that's what is pulling us. Is that did I capture that? Yeah, well, I. I actually don't like the goal to lose 20 pounds. Okay, perfect, because <laughs> i that's one of the things I'd be interested in. Okay, It is uh, very commonly mentioned when we ask people about uh, uh, their goals. Uh, it is not a great goal for, for a few reasons. Uh, for many people, it's unrealistic. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it is uh, often an avoidance goal. It's about what I will not do. Okay, which is much harder than, than approach goals. So approach healthy lifestyle uh, is better than uh, avoiding unhealthy lifestyle. And, and also for many people, I would say uh, approaching a state in which you are happy with your body mm. is better than uh, uh, having the, the goal to uh, uh, be different. Okay, It might not be uh, possible to you and you might be able to be healthier, to eat healthier, to exercise, to uh, to be happier with who you are uh, in your current weight, okay, or, you know, in less than uh, 20 pounds. So some people do need to lose weight, but everybody wants to lose weight. Yeah. And not everybody needs to. Lose weight. Many, <laughs> yeah. many people yeah. need to learn to uh, to like the person you are and, and to be healthy in, in in your current body. But that's not what you asked. And I'm like, you need to remind me what you asked. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, I forgot. I forgot what I asked. I, I can't even remember what I no, asked. I, I know. I, I know. I know. You, you asked about. Uh, the means. Uh, the, the, yeah. Yeah. Not, not getting stuck on, uh, uh, on the means. And, and the problem with the means is that people see them as uh, chores. Okay? Ah. The problem is that if I, I think about doing means, I feel like I'm constantly like doing some chores with with the hope that uh, one day uh, this uh, uh, list will be uh, completed. But I I don't quite see myself as doing the the thing that I'm hoping to do. And I no I I start my my book with the example of uh, uh, climbing uh, Mount Everest, which. When people climb Mount Everest, they, they don't feel like they are training towards something. They don't feel like they, they do this because then they can do something else. 
it's the thing itself. It's the feeling that you are doing the thing that you wanted to do, which is much more motivating than doing something toward the thing that I then want to do. Yeah. Okay, it's like the, the employee that is constantly like thinking about, well, once I finish this role, I can go into the next role and this is really what I want to do. Yeah. I love it. I think it was interesting uh, for me. There's so much talk in the behavioral science world about context. Context matters. Context is king. Things like that. You very rarely use the word context. You talk about circumstance. And I was wondering, is there is that intentional? It's intentional in, in a way that uh, I, y- you change not only the, your situation, you change how you frame your situation. You change, like, you know, we, we talked about looking back versus looking ahead. You are at the same place. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But you, you change what you, you attend to. You, you change how you, uh, uh, you frame this. And I, I, I just thought that circumstance is, is a better way to, to think about that. Yeah, I think framing, you bring up the, the the concept of framing and framing and the words, choices that we have is such a big part of motivation and some of the, uh, the the elements of this. How much, how important is it? And I'm coming back to some ideas about uh, self-identity and who we are. And because you talk about this idea again, you, you mentioned this idea of, I, I am I doing this job to get to the next job and doing that, you know, again, going back to the means versus the goal, how much do we need to align our goals with who we are and, and how important is some of the self identity components within this? Does that make sense? Yeah, it, absolutely. And uh, it is quite critical. Okay. Uh, we, uh, we often think about who we are and our identity when uh, we, when we are trying to motivate ourselves yeah. and, and when there is a, a congruency between your identity and the goal that you are pursuing, it is much easier to uh, to feel motivated. You know, we, we touched a uh, uh, healthy eating. Healthy eating and, and healthy foods that uh, fit some people's identity better than others. And when it is part of your identity, then it is much easier than uh, uh, when you see this as a, uh, is trying to like someone is trying to persuade you to eat something that is not part of who you are as, as a person, okay, mm. of how you, you see yourself. We also see that uh, uh, people care more about doing something that fits with their identity at the beginning and, and the end. Yeah. <laughs> doing something so again, like yeah, you know, it in, goes in back the to middle, that middle, like, yeah, the yeah. middle part, yeah. <laughs> in the middle, I can relax my identity, but in the actions that I'm going to remember. I, I want to be the the person that I am, the person that I see myself. I, you know, I, I also talk about the motivation to get things done versus to get it right. And to do it right is often a matter of the, my identity. Am I doing it in the way that fits me as, as a person? I love that. I thought it was interesting for a book that is titled Get It Done, which conjured up images of deliverables and results and and deadlines and things like that, that patience plays sort of a hero in in the book, you know, as, as I read it, <laughs> right? Is it is, patience is important, isn't it? Patience is, is important. Yeah, I'm now, you know, I'm, I'm just, you're making me doubt my uh, title. Oh, no. Now. Like, <laughs> no. You know, I, <laughs> too late. <laughs> no, oh, oh, gosh, please. Oh, yeah, look, that's yeah. not our intention. <laughs> Uh, no, no, this is the, the academic uh, in me always uh, thinking, uh, you know, is, <laughs> like, is there a better way to capture uh, uh, something? Uh, patience is, uh, is, is, is critical for uh, motivation. No, I, I do a lot of work on uh, what makes some people uh, more patient than, than others. We often have that this view of patience as as uh, uh, willpower, as the struggle that we just can't hold ourselves. Okay, it's why, for example, we you know you ask me about the, the tea, uh, uh, my tea drinking uh, uh, habit. It's why I would often drink the tea when it's too hot. Okay, that that's like I just couldn't hold myself. I so much wanted it, right? And then I put on my lips. Okay. But this is only part of the, the problem. This is impulse control. This is why mm-hmm. kids often can't wait for that two candies, okay, taking the one marshmallow one and the one marshmallow now. 
Hey folks, just a quick interjection here. Ayelet talked about marshmallows here, one marshmallow versus two. And what she was referring to was Walter Michel's studies from the 1970s on delayed gratification. Yeah, the basic story is kids were presented with one marshmallow, asked to wait 15 minutes. And if they did wait 15 minutes and not eat that marshmallow, they could get two marshmallows. So that's the one marshmallow, two marshmallow. Yeah. So again, delaying gratification and resisting temptation. Okay, back to ILET. The other aspect, the other barrier to patient is that we might not value enough what we are waiting for. And, and so we see that often when we make people appreciate what they're waiting for, they're willing to wait longer. Okay, if you know, in our studies, if people were waiting for some product that they really liked, okay, they, they were more patient, they were willing to wait longer to get a better version of it. Okay. Like if I really care about technology, I might be willing to wait six months for the new phone to come out. Okay. Whereas if I don't value it, if I don't care so much about technology, I would just go with whatever phone is on the market right now. This is not the breakdown of the willpower. Okay. The, here, what makes you patient is understanding that what you're waiting for is worth it. Okay. That it's sufficiently valuable outcome. Mm. When you talk about willpower in the book, you also bring up a, a, this idea of temptation, this idea of the, the things that, that tempt us, but also that there's this, and correct me if I'm wrong in, in how I, I understood this, but this idea that a temptation isn't a temptation if we don't realize it's a temptation. Is that is something along that lines, uh, the, this idea that, you know, we, all right, there's that. But can you talk a little bit about temptations and how we can overcome, again, if willpower isn't really the key piece here, but then, you know, how do we not fall to these temptations that are out there? Yes. The problem with our modern temptation is that often if you just do it once, then nothing bad happens. Yeah. It like, right. So it just, uh, uh, one cookie uh, will not uh, change your diet, uh, uh, driving uh, too quickly just uh, at one time, uh, that's fine. That doesn't really increase the risk in your driving by much. Cutting corners, like, you know, in, in ethical dilemmas, like usually if you just do it once, okay, it's really like you will not change your how you see yourself. It's fine to, to cheat a little bit mm, okay, mm-hmm. in a way, like for our self-esteem. We will not think about it as, as a temptation. That means that the first challenge with that overcoming temptation is to identify that there is a problem here, to see that like this is a, like, something that they should be avoided. I, you know, I really like uh, uh, Abby Sussman here. My colleague has uh, uh, research on uh, um, these kind of purchases that you do uh, only once in a while. She mm. calls it exceptional uh, purchases. And we tend to overspend on that. Because it's just like one time, okay? It's like, I know I'm, I'm only buying you this gift like once in a year for the holiday or I'm only buying this uh, a champagne bottle like, you know, wh- when there is a party. And it's really hard to see that that will undermine my financial goals because it's just like one time. time. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so interventions that get people to think about all these temptations together, okay, think about what you're going to eat every day this month. Think about how much money you're going to spend in the next two months on, on this kind of purchases. Uh, uh, just use what we call the wide bracket. Helps people identifying the temptation. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do that, isn't it? I, I, if, if it were easy, wouldn't it just be more common? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to do that, but it is uh, uh, not impossible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when when you're tempted to take uh, a sick day that uh, you, you're not really sick, you just needed to, to take a day off. Well, you, you can think about doing it 10 times this year. Oh, yeah. In our studies, and you're less likely to yeah. think that yeah. that's okay. Okay, I want to come back to labels on, oh, <laughs> on, yeah. on food products because we talked about this with the with the calorie component. And so I, what was really fascinating to me was some of the ideas that you had put in the book about, you know, it is hard to know uh, and, and serving sizes and other things that go into calories. But if I'm trying to have a 2000 calorie diet per day, well, I don't know how I'm doing. So it's hard to be actionable or measurable on that. 
but you were talking about different ways that if we labeled food differently, it could potentially change how things become actionable. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, I uh, actually find food labels to be quite entertaining because they give you so much information, (laughs) right? And all of it is useless. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. There are some studies where they ask people, do you want uh, food labels to also carry this information about this ingredient that doesn't exist? Now, people don't know that it doesn't exist, okay? But as a researcher, I just made it up, okay? Do you want me to uh, require companies to uh, uh, tell their customers how much of this non-existing ingredient is there. And most people say, oh, yes, sure. Like, give me the information. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know. Uh, And and so we created these labels that are not useful. uh, But we can change that. uh, Some research with uh, uh, the the light, uh, the traffic light, symbols uh, found that people do respond to that. If some food is marked as as red uh, versus yellow versus green, then you know green, you can have as much as you want. Uh, uh, Red, uh, uh, pay attention. In Israel, which is, uh, you know, where where I'm from and my my parents are still uh, there, uh, I don't know if they still do it, but at least for a while they had red stickers on on foods that you should not eat Mm. uh, that are... (laughs) <laughs> that are not good easy for heuristics, you. right? It's 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 easy for us to understand that as opposed to trying to do the math of all right, this is three hundred calories, and wait, it's three hundred twenty. Yeah. So, and you know, adding all that up over the course of a day, it's much easier to go. Oh, green, I can eat a lot yeah. of this. Yellow, moderate, and red every once in a while. Were the red stickers on the products in the market or yeah. did, did they buy them and bring them home and then decide <laughs> to put the red stickers on it's them? It's a self-goal. There you go. A self-way of looking at that. You, you actually, you buy the, the cookies and on the box, there is this uh, red mark that uh, is a cue that, you know, don't eat too many of these cookies. Yeah. Wow. I'm just curious along those lines, is there a correlation? Is there some causation? Does Having the red sticker, the red mark, reduce cookie consumption? Uh, well, so I uh, I don't know about the data from Israel. I know that in the U.S., yes, there are studies showing that, yeah, you, you, oh, you do uh, reduce consumption. Now, these are not huge effects. Right. All, all of these effects, they are small. And so really, like, you know, if you're looking for something that will, like, change what people eat, <laughs> well, it's something that you can use. <laughs> yeah, one of one of many things. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember, and I forget who we talked to, Tim, about research on once they put calories up on the fast food boards and different pieces, is that it actually didn't change people uh, overall calorie consumption. What they they might have like ordered something, but then they ordered the shake on the back because they felt good about you know taking. Uh, I, I was good on the meal, so I can I can now indulge on the back end, and so some of those factors that come into play sometimes there too. So, so I I, I really like this comment because that this is the problem with healthy food that we think that healthy food is something that we should then compensate for with unhealthy food, right? That it's a, a, a it just like we we need to get out of this mentality that it's either healthy or yummy. Okay. Mm. And, <laughs> You need to enjoy food. Okay? We need to enjoy food. We want to enjoy food. And so we need to find a healthy food that really feels good, that is tasty. Yeah, I love that. That's, and that's such a well-balanced approach. I wanted to, to turn away from the book for just a minute and ask about some of your new research, some of the things that you're working on now. Back to the corporate world. Can you uh, share any insights about new work? <laughs> so new work. So um, let me mention a paper in which we are, uh, tried an intervention to get people to do something that doesn't feel good uh, when you immediately start. And so we know that uh, people are motivated to do what is gratifying at the moment. Okay, We know that people are always seeking immediate gratification. Animals, uh, the same, by the way. And we uh, try to see whether it doesn't need to be good, it just needs to be immediate. And this is what we we did with uh, the second uh, city club, uh, improv club uh, here in, uh, in Chicago, uh, we uh, join their uh, classes for people that are 
not professionals that are just hoping to learn some improv so that they could do better in, in their personal lives or in their professional lives, not as actors and actresses. And we asked them when they were just starting the class to try to embarrass themselves, try to feel uncomfortable, okay? Try to, uh, uh, basically, your goal for this exercise is to feel uncomfortable. And as a result of that People were willing to take more risks. People were willing to engage more. People were really doing what would make them feel uncomfortable. And it was immediate. They did feel uncomfortable. Okay? But they were also more engaged and they were also more likely to come back. They were in the exercises doing more. Okay, They took more time. They were maybe dancing instead of walking or like doing something unusual with their body when you know, the focus was on, on, on them. They learn, and, and, and what we learn from this is that often the, the way to get yourself to do something is by seeking this immediate discomfort, by seeking to feel sweaty when you exercise, okay? Ah. By, uh, by taking this discomfort as a sign that this is working, okay, that I, I'm engaging, I'm doing something that's hard. Does that align with some of the research I know when when they talk about the, the trepidation that people get on, on speaking and yet it's the same kind of feeling that you get when you're excited about something as well. It's just how we label it within our thing. And so if you can take that that feeling of, oh, my gosh, my heart's beating fast and all this kind of stuff and go, this is good as opposed to this is scary. It, it, is, is it similar to, to, to that or is it different? Yeah, so you're talking about uh, reprisal, which uh, is a, a tested uh, strategy. Basically, what you experience is, you know, if your heart rate is, is elevated, okay, you might be uh, sweaty. And now you can think about this either as excitement or as anxiety. Yeah. Okay, and excitement is better than anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always. Yeah. Uh, what, what we did was... Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Actually, like it's okay to call it negative. Like you know, it it like, ah. yeah. Feel free to be anxious. Your goal here is to be anxious. Okay, your goal is to feel uncomfortable. Now, it's not your ultimate goal, but it's a, for this exercise. Try to feel uncomfortable. We now we did a study in which we uh, had people uh, read the news. Mm. Uh, and they, we had them like read about gun violence and, and read about things that are unpleasant. With the goal to feel bad, mm. okay? and so you you don't think maybe I'm excited, maybe I'm happy to read about these awful things. You know you're unhappy, okay? But you know that your goal was to feel in this feel this way, and you're feeling this way, and so it you get this immediate reward. That from, you're making progress, right? Yeah, it's all, yeah going exactly. back to, to the progress part that you talked about exactly. Well, that's it's it's interesting because I'm wondering. I mean, there's so much that you could think about this like confirmation bias that we have, and oftentimes I I think, and I don't know if the research supports this, but it's that we're trying to avoid those negative feelings when we feel something that is against that belief that we have. But if we reframe that to say, no, this is we should be searching because when you talk about looking for the news, like look for those disconfirming pieces of evidence and. You, you'll know you'll get there when you start feeling that angst that you have. I think that's really fascinating stuff that you could take to, you know, multitude of levels. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Paul Bloom at Yale wrote a book called The Sweet Spot and this idea of it's okay to understand the pain as as essential to getting to the pleasure. Right. Yes, absolutely. And I, I and I love Paul Bloom's work. There is also work showing that uh, there are certain situations where people try to make themselves feel bad. Okay, mm -hmm. like you know, a funeral mm -hmm. is the obvious one. Okay, like you want to feel bad, you want to like uh, uh, be in the right mindset for the situation. There is also a research showing that people want to feel angry. Uh, so they, they they would choose music that makes them angry uh, before, uh, uh, like I don't know, playing certain video games. That, yeah. uh, you you really need to be in that like the attack uh, mindset <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to do well. Yeah, I mean, I know professional sports players oftentimes will listen to very aggressive music prior to the game starting in order to get themselves in the mindset and various different pieces 
going again to some of the other outside research that you've done besides the book, you've done a lot of research on learning and learning from failure in particular. Can you talk a little bit about some of that research and what are the findings that you've gotten? Yes, I I was also uh, interested in like... uh, you know, why why people don't learn from failure and in like i i was fascinated by instances such as uh, uh you know like when i when my studies fail my studies fail all the time by the way if you're in the business of doing research then like, most of the time you have failed studies and uh, and then you ask what have i learned from them and you really like uh, have hard time <laughs> <laughs> extracting the lessons like wh- what's going on why is it so hard to learn from from failure and th- there are two problems okay one is emotional okay it's just easy to put it away and the other is uh, cognitive it's it's actually harder to extract lesson from getting that uh, from getting the feedback that that you were wrong so so let me give you an example like we we designed experiments in which we had people learn some, let's say, a new language, okay? Like we actually tried a few things, say, okay? and, and so you learn this new language and we present to you a word and we ask you, is this an animal or a, an object? Mm. It's new language, okay? And you are guessing and we either tell you you were right or you were wrong and then we test whether you remember the correct answer, okay? Now, given that there were only two possible answers, okay, it could either be an animal or an object, if I tell you that it's not an object, you should know that it's an animal, okay? People find it much easier to learn when they got positive feedback, when they guessed correctly than when they guessed incorrectly. And to us, that suggested it's really just hard to learn from failure because, they, you know, first they, you feel, oh, I, I messed it up. I, I Maybe I'm not good at languages. Maybe I... Like, I I don't think that this experiment is is important enough for me. Like you, you disengage emotionally, and second, you need to do the mental switch. If this is not an animal, then this must be an, an object, and this is uh, surprisingly hard for people. Which is interesting because the the common you know learn from your failures. The 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 whole you know there's an industry built around, you know, consulting around all of that kind of component. And yet it seems like, hey, maybe we have that backwards. Maybe we need to be really thinking about how do we accentuate the positive insights that we can gain and and build on that. Is that something there? So the industry uh, about learning from failure is there exactly because it's how to do. Ah. There you go. Okay. <laughs> uh, now, uh, 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 Kurt, you, you you say maybe we should just uh, uh, not learn from failure, just Ooh. focus on, on learning from successes. And the, here's the problem. Uh, there is often really good lessons in failure. <laughs> ah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and often we are in an environment in which there are few ways to fail and, and more ways to get it right. Okay, Like I might be in a, in a restaurant in which uh, uh, most of the, the food is good, but really you should not eat the egg salad. Mm. <laughs> you know, in my school, maybe most classes are good, but there are a few classes that really you don't want to take. And so failures often contain really good information, in particular where most of the things are okay. Most of the people are good to work with, just don't work with that person. Uh-huh. And then we, we need to be able to learn from failure. One easy solution is to learn from others' failures, which we find is much easier. Okay, if you see another person's mm. failing on the task that I described before, like learning a new language, if I see you mess it up, I actually know the correct answer. Uh, and so you can learn from others' failures. You can uh, uh, use other interventions, such as distancing yourself from the failure. So, you know, like uh, Ethan Corses' work on self-talk comes to mind. Uh, Carol Dweck's work on the uh, growth mindset. Yeah, mm-hmm. And, and another thing that we uh, did uh, that was quite successful in our experiment is getting people to give another person advice. Ah. Uh, so, you know, if, if you failed, uh, tell me what happened and uh, how, how you think I should do that. And that really get people to, to think about what they have learned from their failures. I love that. I love that. That is always one of my, my favorite pieces of research that says, 
you know, that we'll learn by giving someone else advice about, about something that we won't, that we hadn't thought of or weren't willing to do ourselves. But now as soon as it becomes, oh, I can tell this other person how to do this, <laughs> that, that, it, that it can reverberate back to us. You see, um, Tim, this is why the three of us are in the business of teaching people. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, although I don't think that I've gotten any smarter or any better from, from doing that, but maybe I have, maybe I have. Ayala, we we'd love to hear a little bit about uh, about your musical proclivities. We we understand that you you are surrounded by people who are very serious about music, and that you don't consider yourself very strong as in in this area. But you listen to music. You you like to listen to music, right? Yes, I uh, love music. I just uh, wish I was good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> I like uh, if I could, uh, you know, like these hypothetical games when you you think about what what is the skill that you would like to have, what the thing that you would like to change about yourself. I wish I was musical. <gasps> wow! I, oh. And I, I live with uh, uh, people that that music is such a big part of their lives. They are playing the violin and and, and the piano, and it's like that the house always has music in it, and I cannot produce any of it. So. Uh, it's it's a difficult point that you just touched. Well, do you? So, okay. Well, hopefully that's not too sensitive. But do you listen to music when you work? No, I uh, don't listen to anything uh, while I work. Not because it would bother me, because I wouldn't hear it. Mm. Oh, interesting. You, you can literally just block it out. I unfortunately or fortunately, I, I don't hear hear anything when I focus on my work. It, it's very annoying for the people around me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like my son when he's playing video games. I don't know. He doesn't hear me at all whenever I'm doing that. So yeah. Exactly, right? And you think that he's just like not being polite or something, but he doesn't hear. He's, he's in it. I mean, and I can stand right next to him and say, hey, it's dinner time. And he's like, nah, nah. If, uh, that focus oblivious. is a very important aspect of goal attainment. So <laughs> bravo to you to be able to have that level of focus. Uh, yeah, it helps to get things done, but you know, it, uh, <laughs> it comes with the cost. Yeah. Well. thank you so very much for being our guest on Behavioral Groups today. We have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with you and we're grateful for you taking time with us. Thank you, uh, Tim and Kurt. I, I love your podcast and thanks for having me on it. Oh, thank you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Ayelet. Have a free flowing conversation and talk about whatever else comes into our middle problem brains. Well, that's pretty darn good, isn't it? Middle Talking problem about is not a good thing. The middle problem is a horrible thing. It's like when we we lose all of that momentum, we we like our goal, which was so yeah. cool for us, and then all of a sudden it's like, eh, eh, it's the middle. I eh, it's yeah. Why do I have a to really, this? really, really good thing to talk about though? It's a really good thing that she has researched it. That little paper cutting study was fantastic as a, as a way to demonstrate how it worked. It is so important. How many times have you and I seen this in incentive designs? Oh my God. When a, you've got a, a corporate sales VP client who says, I want to motivate my salespeople. Those reps are going to work super hard and it's going to be, you know, 90 days or something. And they're 45 days into it and, and sales are flagging and the sales VP says, we got to put out more money on there. We got to you know, do something else to stimulate more activity. And the middle problem research that Ayelet has done says, don't put more money on it. Don't try to invest in more rewards. Just communicate with them. Like it's a really, really important thing to let people know how much progress they're making. Help them look behind rather than looking ahead. And give them a sense of, of okay, I've I'm, I'm actually been doing good so far. It's this whole piece of, of understanding this is the part that I wish many of our corporate people that we work with would understand. It's that the simple answers are not always the best answers. It's this <laughs> right. idea right. that, look, let's understand human behavior. Let's understand that this is a natural occurrence. That we know 
that we start off. It's goal gradient theory. We start off yep. really super excited about the goal when we get it, right? When we uh, kind of are committed to it, as we've talked about in past episodes, and then it wanes. It goes down. Yeah. And then, and then it naturally picks up and then at the it picks end. up near the end, right? It's and, and I've told the story before, and I apologize for people, but it's I, I use this example of my daughter who, when she was younger, we would walk to the park, and she was super excited when we start off. She's holding my hand, she's kind of leading the way, and you know that's for the first two blocks as we're walking there, and then by block three, she's like, oh, I'm getting tired, Papa, you know, and then by block four, I got to carry her because she's just. Ugh. <laughs> Uh, her whole body is just like, I can't walk anymore, you know, and then yeah. we get, you know, that's another four or five blocks to the to the park and about two blocks in front of the park. All of a sudden she can start seeing it and no longer does she want to be carried. She wants to be down and she's running super fast in front of me to get to the park. It's that yeah. middle four blocks that has that decrease in motivation. That's the middle problem right there. It's just, ah. Uh, that's it. And it's not a reward or incentive solution. I think it's a communication. It's to be reminded, hey, look, we're halfway. Look at how far we've come. It's definitely a communication piece, right? It's how far we've come, but it's also looking then at at how far we have to go. And depending upon where you are in the process, because about block three or four, you know, looking back is probably better than looking forward. And in this kind of example with my daughter, but about block six or seven, it might be better to start communicating about looking forward because we only have three or four more blocks left in different pieces. Then in addition to that, though, it's it's determining, has there, is there something else that we can do? Is there, there's a coffee shop along the way to that, that park. Can I say, we're going to stop for a hot cocoa as part of this because now it's that, you know, 10 block thing is split into six blocks and four blocks. And mm -hmm. the motivation to get to the coffee or, you know, to get the hot cocoa is part of that too. So it's in the design of it. And how are you breaking down that larger goal into milestones or subsequent other factors that can be included as part of this? In order to achieve that, you might even be saying that the communication that happens at these different points is context sensitive. You might be saying that. Just I, I just am not <laughs> might be saying that. I am saying that. Yes. And this idea yeah. that this is the other problem that we see, and I, I know you've seen this as well, is there's a whole bunch of hype at the beginning and then it's radio silence until the end. And oftentimes in these corporate goal yep. setting things, that yes. is one of the worst things that we've seen it too often where people have gone through a, like a contest, a three month contest and they win and they go, oh, I didn't even know I was in a contest. Right. <laughs> it's like, that, that's a big communication problem right that's there. That's a huge communication problem. And the idea about that, I think, is is really important is how are you communicating? How are you designing these in order to tap into our natural human inclinations and make sure that you're leveraging those in order to get the biggest impact. And we're talking about this from a corporate setting, but this also comes into our personal goals, our personal very much so. Yep. opportunities that we have. How are we keeping that goal that we have set for ourselves top of mind so that we don't have a middle problem. It is right now we're recording this. It's the second week of January and the many people who have started on their new year's resolutions are starting to hit that middle problem right now. Exactly. And, and that means they're, they're like, well, I'm not doing so great. I I'm going to give it the, what the hell effect and it's not working for me. So I'm done. Yeah. And this is a good time to actually take an accountability review of where you've mm -hmm. been, what was working, what didn't work, and either reset the goals or reframe the goals. It's not that the goals are necessarily bad. It might be that they just need some tweaking. They might need some new and refreshed commitment to them. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the idea of having the goal was a bad idea. Well, and, and think about the goals. And again, one of the other pieces that Ayala was talking about was this idea of not setting goals that are means, not setting this, I need to go to the gym 
and work out 30 minutes every day. That's a means to the end. That's a means and, goal. Yep. And when you have a means to the end goal, while it's very specific and it's very measurable, I can go in there and look, yep, I've done this every day and I mark it off, I mark it off, I mark it off. There's power to that progress that we see. However, it isn't inspirational to us. So we need to set these, right. uh, as we talked about in our goal setting episode, what we call keystone goals. This idea of making sure that these goals have larger influence into the rest of our lives. The more that we can kind of tie in what our goal is going to do for us and then how that goal subsequently helps us achieve other things that we want to achieve, the more motivational pull that that has. And I think that is a really good piece for people to be thinking about right now. And this goes back into her flexibility too. Let's take a look. Is the goal really the goal that you want to achieve? And if it's not, you don't have to stick with it. Man, change it, adapt That's it. Right. You That's know, right. use a, this is, think of it as this was a, a, a trial test. And now I've no more information and I can go out there and I can actually set goals that are going to be meaningful, keystone in their application and really drive my behavior. The other key thing that Ayala talked about was making sure that those goals have meaning to you. And this is the problem with the means related things of just go to the gym every day or go to the gym three times a week. It We're, we're not invested in it. We have to get invested in our goals in order for them to, to really be uh, effective. Yeah. And for, for us to attain them, it has to mean something to us. You can't just select it. You know, a lot of the early work uh, from Locke and Latham was just self-selection and participation and selection goal increase performance. It does. But if you're going to really knock those goals out of the park, you've got to love them. You have to defend them. You have to be willing to invest in them. And that, you ha- that means some kind of an emotional connection. Mm-hmm. I will never, ever get emotionally connected to the idea of having a goal of going to the gym three times a week. But I can get emotionally invested in the idea of living a healthier life. What Even even if you were going to go to the gym with, with me and we would go together <laughs> and it would be a bonding time? No? No. No, that, oh, no, man. no, we, no, you and I have other goals like <laughs> that. And that usually has beer with it. <laughs> point taken, point taken. I, I also wanted to talk about, I love the way Ayelet's work on motivation and goal setting integrates progress. Mm-hmm. Now, Teresa Mobley's work uh, from Harvard is fantastic on the progress principle. That book is terrific and it's really wonderful. Ayelet's work did a wonderful job of integrating that progress concept into goal setting and motivation. Mm-hmm. And of course, this feeds right into the middle problem. So I don't, I don't reiterate all that. But I just wanted to note that that's a really beautiful, not just from a research perspective, but from an application perspective, a beautiful integration. And I think it comes into, too, what you were talking about from a framing perspective. How are we framing that progress? Are we framing it as how far we've come or how far we have to go. And again, that is a cool, cool piece of this. The other piece that I just loved, both from her book, but also when we talked with her, is this concept on temptations. Because we get thrown off of our goal journey, not because we don't necessarily want to achieve the goal, But because all of a sudden we have these temptations put in front of us and sometimes, and this was the interesting piece, and we didn't talk about it so much in the the conversation, but in her book, she goes into that we don't even realize their temptations. And when we don't realize Mm -hmm. their temptations, we don't necessarily can't resist those temptations because we don't even know their temptations. But this idea that these temptations are put there in front of us, the donut in the break room, the, you know this expensive dinner the, the, well that's the, a whole that those those exceptional purchases that was yeah. that was really cool in in kind of that conversation yeah so yeah it really it really got me thinking about how important and and this is a theme i think across a lot of behavioral sciences is is zoom out right be intentional get a get a broader picture be a little bit skeptical ask some questions be thoughtful and intentional about your life and sometimes that comes from sort of getting your head out of the sand and standing up on whatever molehill you can stand on and getting a view for what life is about and not just grinding through the day to day. And to that, I loved her idea about 
taking that larger perspective of the temptations in your life. Because again, we can discount that one donut in the break room. Well, all right. The, you know, my diet is still intact. You know, yeah, I kind of, even if you don't go down the what the hell effect, it's like, oh, that's not so bad. But then later that night, it's like, oh, family's having ice cream for dessert. Well, I'll just have that or I'll do the extra scoop of that. And then it's, well, it's not only one, it's just an extra scoop. It's not that big of a deal. And then the next day it's, you know, oh, I'll have a second bowl of cereal. Those by themselves are not going to destroy your goal. Those in combination, the collective will. And that is the part about identifying those temptations and bundling them together and thinking about this bundle of temptations as opposed to the individual ones. And so, yeah, I can break one. And, And I think this is another big piece is, you know, Giving into temptations isn't always bad. We have to live our lives. You know, life without eating donuts is just not a life worth living. <laughs> I think I, I, I think I might argue with you on oh, that. Oh, come on. <laughs> I mean, well, maybe not donuts, but ice cream first. Damn sure. Come on. All like right. I, I, you got me. Anyway, but this idea okay. that, you know, temptations in and of themselves are there. And sometimes it's probably the right decision to give into those temptations. We just have to ensure that we're not giving into the temptations in such a manner that they are going to derail us significantly from our long-term goals. Or that the temptations, that giving into those temptations become the norm. Because that is what can happen, right? And and then guess what? That becomes the habit. (laughs) And then we get into a whole other discussion about habits. We'll get Wendy Wood on to talk about that. All right. Well, well, folks, I think that's time to wrap it up for this episode. As always, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you find this interesting, if you think there's a kernel of value in this, we would be so appreciative if you just shared it. If you shared this episode with a friend, a colleague, coworker that you kind of like, that you think might value this. The stranger you met on the street the other day, just say, hey, have you ever heard of Behavioral Grooves? It's a fantastic podcast. Okay. Okay. Maybe not that, but anyway. But strangers will listen to you more than you think, because if you listen to episode uh, with Vanessa Bonds, you've got more influence than you think. Yeah. See, all of this are from what you learn on listening to Behavioral Grooves. So with that, folks, please Go out, take these lessons, make your life better, set those keystone goals for yourself, figure out ways to get past the middle problem and find your groove this week. 